You're listening to What the Dev, the weekly podcast of SD Times. And now, here's KDD, online and social media editor of SD Times. Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us for today's podcast episode. Today, we're going to be speaking with Brett Greenstein, partner, data analytics, and AI at PwC, about generative AI and how developers can use it to bring the most value to their organizations. To start things off, how can organizations really work to get the most out of generative AI tools and technologies? There's a few things to think about. First, obviously, you need a workforce that is going to lean on this technology in the general sense. So the idea of being able to ask questions that you do in the course of your business to get help on everyday daily tasks, um, even if you were to use the public instance, you have to recognize that anything that goes in that, you know, is, you know, not confidential. So using the public instance is already useful for so many people doing their jobs because they can ask a question without confidential information about how to do this or that or ideas for writing something or ideas for for code and it's proven to be extremely productive for a lot of people in a lot of industries but secondarily we expect people to um, internalize that to bring those systems in-house so subscribing to and getting private instances of technologies like chat gpt are possible and that allows you to ask much more confidential questions and not worry about the out input and output going into the model that everyone else uses. And that's what most of our clients are very interested in, is protecting their intellectual property, protecting the, the dialogue they have with AI, and making sure that it's not useful to others and not losing their competitive advantage. Right. But then you can go further than that, and you can do what's called embeddings, which allows you to bring your own content into the discussion. So it's one thing to ask it, how do you write Python code to do X? Um, It's another if you want to even be more specific and say, I'm doing this project. I need this to work on this system. That's maybe some confidential stuff in there. Still, it's an open-ended prompt on a general knowledge. But if you also said, these are the last five pieces of code I did for this client. Can you generate 10 more that do these other things and use the same style formatting language structure you know, variable naming conventions that I used on the other ones. Now you can embed your own knowledge into it. And this is a, a really powerful capability. Uh, it's API accessible. You give it content. It creates what's called an embedding, which is a representation of your content. And then you can use that content as context for follow-on questions and, and requests. Now it's personalized to your business. And that is a really powerful concept and allows you to do things in a differentiated way at speed in the context of your own knowledge. Right. And when dealing with kind of confidential information, do you think there's any security risk that comes with that? Oh, there definitely is. And I think that companies that are using these services, for example, obviously OpenAI and Microsoft, OpenAI services on Azure, um, is a way to implement it in a way that you can use with the security model that Azure has. So you still have to configure and set up systems so they work properly in your environment, meeting your security rules, firewalls, VPNs, things like that. However, um, by having instances dedicated to you as a company, um, you're able to protect your data. I still think there's a lot of considerations because a lot of users within companies will not always understand when they're using a public service or an internal service. And there's always opportunity and risk in leakage of data. And I think people should be worried about that. And every company is already setting up policies on that. And I get that people worry about, you know, the risks of that, but the productivity is also very high. And when used correctly, can be a very powerful tool. So I think it's an education. It's a policy thing. I think it is about 
making sure you have secure um, provisioned environments for your business so you can do real heavy business work with your own data and not feel exposed. These are all important factors. And do you think that there should be a separate section of training for developers um, on generative AI so they can be cognizant of these security risks and kind of not open the business up for vulnerabilities? Yes, I think it's more than security, though. I think the one of the things that's cool about this technology is that it's accessible to developers. You don't have to be a data scientist to call APIs, to send information, to get you know responses back, and to embed them into applications. Right. And because it's open to developers, not to data science, not just data scientists. Now you have to worry about the quality of answers. How do you test the accuracy of what you're getting? How do you look for bias and things like that? These are things data scientists are kind of designed to do and and developers don't usually look for. So we do recommend that companies that are using this technology in solutions, applications, projects, that they identify they're using it during the project, that they have people who are watching for quality, bias, ethics, um, responsible use of AI. It's not that you shouldn't do it, it's that you should do it responsibly. And that does require an extra level of um, inspection and thought that goes into projects that use it. And how can users really be sure that they're giving the tool the best prompt in order to get the kind of desired desired results? That is a tricky question. Um, in the sense of a Google search, you know when you're giving a good search because you're getting the answers on the first page. Right. You know, and you can people have learned how to do that. In prompting, prompting is much more of an art. Right. Now, if you're just doing a prompt as an individual asking a system to produce something you're probably going to be quite, if you're good at it, you'll be iterative. You'll, you'll do one, you get something, you'll be like, that's close, but not exactly what I wanted. And then you will keep going back and refining your prompt. In the case of prompting, being as specific as you as you can be gets you a better answer, right. which is the opposite of a Google search. A Google search, you want to make sure you don't exclude too much, so you keep it a little broader. But in prompting, you want to be very, very precise. Um, act as an advanced coder. I'm going to be giving you a sample code in Python. Please develop something similar, um, but do this other thing and do it in, you know, in a most efficient memory usage approach, whatever the constraints are. You give it constraints. You tell it what you're going to give it. Be precise. Now, even after all of that, you have to test what you get. And I think that um, while generative AI is amazing and fast and productive, it's not perfect because it's a predictive model. It's not deterministic it doesn't you can't guarantee it will give the same answer even twice right. and that's a that's an attribute of a predictive model it's not you can't judge whether it's good or bad it's just the way it works and so given that you have to test your assumptions you have to have critical thinking you have to have common sense you have to look at things and make sure it does what you intended and when it gives you code you have to try the code i think um we should look at this as a system that will never be perfect but it will be very productive and it will be better at average tasks and faster than people. So we will use that as an input and then we'll refine it from there. And it's still up to us as, as people, as workers, as, you know, professionals to make sure that whatever is produced is high quality and accomplishes what our goal was. And how can generative AI tools really work towards heightened developer productivity while also maintaining that human aspect to make sure there's no mistakes that are being pushed to production? So there's two things in your question. I love the second part. How do we know today when people write code that there's no mistakes that get pushed into production? Very true. Um, (laughs) It's really hard to know that. 
What I found is that people in general will try to do the least amount of work to produce functional code. And so they will create code with fewer comments, less error checking, um, simpler variable names, simply to get it out the door quickly because everyone's under time pressure. And then once it functionally works, you tend not to go back and clean it all up. But with generative AI, you can prompt for what you want it to do, tell it you want it to be well formatted, you provide error checking, well documented, use descriptive variable names, use whatever versions of things you want to use. And it will do it very consistently and very quickly. Then as a developer, you focus on making sure it accomplished what you wanted, produce, you know, produce the right output, test it. So I think developers will look at this much more as a productive tool for high quality, consistent code, but they have to prompt well and they have to QA and they have to be thoughtful about what it is they want to get out of this. Right. And that's really the skill set that we all need is to know what we want. So when we ask for it, we can be as specific as we need to be to get the output we want. And what do you think the future of gener- generative AI looks like? Obviously, it's just really coming into the forefront of things now. So where do you think it could go from here? I am so – I couldn't be more excited about this. Mm-hmm. The current models that exist are trained on a huge volume of data, but not all the data that it could be. I expect to see the large language models continue to expand in the knowledge base so get better at specialized things and medicine and legal and finance and domains of knowledge that we typically work in, it will pick up more and more of that over time. Performance will get better. Cost will continue to go down for the consumption and use of it. And these are really important factors because it makes it, if today generative AI is better than the average person at a lot of tasks, and we've seen that with SAT scores and all the other things that it's been tried on, it will get, that average will move up. The bar will raise on its ability to do things with reasonable quality. I think for all of us, the impact is going to be we're going to have to get much better at understanding what we want and having critical thinking and having context of our needs so that we can, you know, ask what we want out of generative AI and get those answers. I also think there's a weird dynamic that's going to occur where systems that talk to systems, today people talk to people. Right. I write a request for insurance. The insurance company writes an, uh, an approval or denial. I write an appeal, and it's a human writing to a human back and forth filling out templates and forms, but it's still people. But very quickly, generative AI will generate that request for coverage. And AI on the, on the insurance side is going to deny that coverage for reasons that will be well articulated because it will be using AI. And then I'll have to write you know, yet another request you know, countering it. So at some point, a lot of communications will be AI to AI. And I don't, I don't know how that all plays out. I just think it's amazingly interesting that if every step gets more efficient – and the output gets more structured, people will start to realize they don't actually need AI talking to AI at all. They need to reimagine a process that uses AI start to finish. And having AI write an email that sends to another AI that reads an email and then writes a response is not the most efficient method. Eventually, there'll be much more direct methods for getting things done. And I already see people thinking about, instead of automating 50 steps in a process, completely change the process using AI from start to finish. Make it an AI native process at which point you don't have all that back and forth interactions. You really have a, a request, like if I need coverage, why not guide me on that coverage request from the start in a way that is likely to be approved based on the conditions I have um, and and reduce the whole process of back and forth, appeal, denial, appeal, denial, just reduce that whole thing by engaging directly between you know uh, the, the two stakeholders and helping having AI generate a proper um, position on what kind of coverage should be done. Right. 
And do you think that there's any risk that generative AI poses to tech jobs? Obviously, we're seeing a lot of layoffs in tech right now. Do you think that generative AI can kind of come in and take some jobs that were obviously meant for people to begin with? Or do you think that it's going to end up being more of a team effort between AIs and actual developers and tech professionals? There's a lot of ways to look at that. I do think there's a lot of activities we do as people, as knowledge workers that are simply going to be done by AI. And for people who are not able to pivot skills, of course, that's a a threat to what they do. However, I would argue that the bigger story is that the people who learn how to use AI effectively are the ones who are going to have the greatest job opportunity and job growth. And if these systems do create more value and reduce a lot of the overhead and costs and drive greater efficiencies, it creates more economic value, which allows for more innovation, which allows for new jobs. So I think you could argue that jobs will continue to evolve probably a little faster now than they were because there's now a part of everything we do where AI is going to be a worker at the table with us. So our coworker will be an AI. It will assist us and help us. So we have to kind of recognize that that future exists where AI is a part of the job force with us. And we have to keep learning new skills while it's picking up things that are perhaps more tedious and repetitive and um, maybe more efficiently done that way. But that's no different than the evolution of jobs that have happened for the last 30 years with, with knowledge work. I do think it's happening a little faster. And there's a lot of um, future shock. I hate that's a great old term. But a lot of future shock going on with people who just never thought this would happen. And now that they're looking at it, they they say things like, this is magic, that's a trick, it can't be real. And then when they try it, they realize it is real. And then they try to figure out how to use it and be more effective. What would you you say to those people who are more apprehensive about the prospect of generative AI and kind of what it can mean for the future? Um, We spend a lot of time on education. I just ran a session just today for a thousand people on this topic. Like people are hungry for information. While people are nervous and concerned, this is interesting technology because our families are using it, our children are using it, our you know, my, my mom is using it and, and she didn't use a microwave for the first 10 years it was out because she was right. nervous about them. But she's using this in the first 10 weeks it was available. It, there's a certain comfort level that comes with the fact that it's useful for things. And I think we just have to kind of move past that. And, I, and people are doing this, move past the nervousness about this thing that you don't have to learn AI to use this. Right. And that makes it useful to a lot of people. What we have to learn is a new way of working and um, we'll all, every company will be doing a ton of education. There'll be a lot more practical, accessible ways to use it. It's being built into the things we use. Um, like I look at the AI adoption that occurred in, um, in images, for example, on, uh, on smartphones. It happened very fast. Most people had no idea they were using AI, except it said the word AI in the app name. Um, but they were producing images you know, using AI. I think this is going to happen very, very quickly. And people are going to move past the, oh, my God, it's AI. I'm nervous and move into, wow, AI helped me do this. Can you help me do that? And that's what I see the dialogue moving very quickly. How did you do that? And I do that. And that once people see it can be done, then you start asking, why am I typing this by hand? I could just ask, you know, a tool to do it. Right. And it does it really well. All right. Well, those are all the specific questions that I had for you, unless you have anything else that you think is worth mentioning. Um, so, so much. I do think there's a lot of um, noise and hype about um, whether it behaves well. 
when people access it and use it. And it's it's kind of hard to ignore the dialogue that people are having around, you know, did did an AI, was it rude? Did it, did it say it had feelings, all these things? I think people just need to kind of remember that these tools do not understand any of the words people type to it. It doesn't understand any of the words that it says. It's not awake, it's not alert, it's not sentient or any of those things. I, I know why people interpret it that way because it sounds like a person. But it really doesn't understand any of the words. It's a predictive model. It takes what you suggested in a prompt, turns it into incredible math, derives from that the intent of what you intended mathematically, then compares it to a very large model to find where predictive outcomes match most likely responses to that math of your input. And then from that converts it back to a response. And once you kind of accept that it doesn't understand the words, it's just a predictive model. You can appreciate the output a little bit more um, and realize that if someone made it say something bad, all they really did was trick an algorithm. It doesn't really say bad things. It doesn't even know what a bad thing or good thing is. It's up to us to put rules and boundaries around it, to put checks and balances in place. That's what tech companies and consulting companies and others do. And for all of us to just recognize it is predicting the best possible response to what you want so change what ask what what you want differently till you get what you need and then you'll find you can be very productive with it right yeah it all kind of comes back to the people aspect of it the tool can't really function without the person it can't function without us and it i know it'd be really nice to think that it knows what it's doing and that's comforting for some people and scary for others but you just have to let go of that it is just a predictive model Mm -hmm. but as a predictive model it's very effective at a lot of the things we do for knowledge work, right. you know, and for home. And, you know, so I, I, if we can just embrace that part of it, you can appreciate it for productivity and effectiveness and not worry about perfection or, you know, whether it understands language. All right. Well, thank you so much again. This was a really great conversation and definitely offered some insight insight into this topic. So I appreciate your time. Thank you so much, Katie. All right, that's all the time that we have for today's show. Thanks again, Brett, for joining me. And as always, thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Be sure to check out all of our weekly episodes on your favorite podcast listening platform. And until next time, this has been What the Dev.